Welcome to the Australian Hiker Podcast, Australia's longest-running hiking podcast, downloaded over half a million times in over 145 countries and providing you with an Australian perspective on all things hiking. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 199 of the Australian Hiker Podcast, and in this week's episode, we're talking about hiking and plane travel. Before we get into today's episode, if you'd like to help support Australian Hiker and this podcast, there are a couple of ways that you can help us out. Firstly, by subscribing on your podcast host of choice so that each episode is available as soon as it's published. And if you have the opportunity, leave us a five-star review. Another way to support us is go to the Australian Hiker website at www.australianhiker.com.au and click on the supporters page and buy us a coffee. You can do a one-off donation or become a monthly supporter. All donations are greatly appreciated and help us to continue producing this podcast and blog. Now let's get on to today's episode. Now for many hikers, getting to the start of a hike typically involves transport in a car or some other form of public transport or maybe even a lift from friends. But every so often, as hikers, we decide to go a bit further afield uh, and do a trip that involves plane travel to get to a destination. Trips like the Overland Track, Larapinta Trail, Bibbulmun Track, or even travelling overseas, uh, which is starting to look like an option these days. In this instance, though, getting to a trailhead uh, and getting your gear there, there's some extra logistical considerations to think of. In this podcast episode... We talk about consideration of the hikes that require plane travel and provide tips to help get the best out of not just your hike, but the journey as well. We hope you enjoy. Now, the idea for this podcast came around from a recent trip where um, I went through this exact process and realized that this is something I've been doing for a number of years. And it's something that I just didn't put much thought into because it had become second nature for us. But I was thinking from a perspective, if you've never actually done this before, it's not a difficult thing to think about and to do, but yeah, there's just additional considerations that you may not have thought of when sort of shipping away from drive to the trailhead as opposed to flying to the trailhead. Yeah, it is a little bit different and you do need to think a little bit more in advance and, you know, that temptation when you're loading up the car to just keep putting stuff in is pretty great but when you're having to travel by plane there's a reasonably limited amount of uh, space uh, that you have available to you. So we're going to go through and look at some considerations that you need to sort of think about when you are heading off on a hike that does involve a plane trip. Now, the first and most obvious one, uh, or it should be the most obvious one, is pack what you need. Now, I say this should be obvious, but I have seen people on hikes of varying lengths carrying some phenomenal loads on their trip. Um, And in fact, one instance, there was uh, someone who was doing the Larapinta Trail at the same time as we were. And their pack was around about 34 kilos in weight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, that's a, that's a big pack for uh, any trip, let alone a trip that's sort of 230-odd uh, kilometres long. Yeah, we had a, also had a friend who was um, hiking with us at one stage and, and uh, decided not to um, carry their pack all the way. Um, so ended up with a pickup service um, at the beginning and end of each day so that uh, 
their their gear was going to be there ready for them when they turned up. And, uh, you know, the amount of stuff they were carrying was just huge, even for a pickup service. <laughs> but that is an advantage. When you don't have to think about carrying it, uh, weight becomes less of a consideration. Well, it, yeah, that's right. It was an advantage, but there was so much that they just did not use and did not need. So when we're talking about packing what you need, um, the first tip is don't leave the packing till the last minute. I typically use very much or have done for a number of years. I use the same gear. The brands might change, but I tend to not add items to the list of what I'm carrying. So again, I don't have to really think too much about what it is that I'm carrying with me. Uh, but in this sort of instance here, there is a process that I go through leading up to a, a, a hike. And we're not talking about sort of just a single overnight hike here. We're talking about hike hikes that are multiple days or multiple weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, getting on a plane to actually go and do this trip. So from my perspective, I start assembling all my gear many weeks in advance. Uh, and Jill really loves this when I start yep. uh, filling, no. <laughs> <laughs> start filling the house up with hiking gear. Uh, and 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 that's actually what I do. I've got a we've got a spare bedroom in the house and bit by bit I start to put stuff into that room. So I progressively work my way through uh, my gear list, my clothing list. I start assembling food. Uh, so everything is pretty much done and dusted as far as all the gear and all the food is in one spot uh, around about a week to 10 days before. And I think the thing about this is that, you know, you remember, oh, I must take this and I must take that. And as you do that, you just um, collect it in, in one spot, uh, ready to sort and ready to um, position in your pack the way you would normally position it. And this is this is something that I do and have always done before I actually go anywhere. I do what's classed or best classed as a pre-pack. So around about roughly around about five to six days prior to a hike, and that includes a weekend, and I'll explain that in a moment, uh, I will go through and assemble everything and pack my hiking pack as if I'm about to throw it on my back and start walking. And weigh it. And, and weigh it as well. <laughs> So what this does is a, is a couple of things. I have a packing system, which I've used for a number of years. The gear goes in the same location on every hike. Uh, I know if I'm looking for a particular piece of equipment, I know where it is in the pack. Yeah, My sleeping gear is always down the bottom. Uh, first aid gear uh, is up the top, uh, and, yeah, and everything else gets spread out in between. But what this does mean is when I go through and start Putting all my gear together in the packet does two things. It means that I can check off what I haven't got, and I do use a checklist, even though in a lot of cases the checklist is in my head. I do have a, a paper version I go through uh, to make sure that I've got everything. And this is a good opportunity to check to make sure everything's still working. So as an example here, uh, you know, if things have got holes in it or the batteries are flat on something, this is an opportunity to check this out a number of days before the trip so as I said, I normally allow a weekend in there somewhere, which means, oh, I've realized I'm short a pair of socks or I need another pair of underpants or um, I've forgotten to buy uh, a particular type of snack or food that I take with me. And, and that allows me time to go out to an outdoor store or another type of store and pick up whatever it is I'm missing. Yeah. And the interesting thing about this is that Tim and I have different styles and different approaches to this. 
So, um, you know, we'll collect our gear separately. (laughs) There is the shared uh, gear that we do use. Um, But, you know, there's no way Tim is allowed near my pile of personal things (laughs) Uh, because I know exactly what I'm doing and it's completely different to what he does. Uh, if you have a look at the photo uh, in uh, the article that accompanies this uh, episode, you'll see this, you know, chaotic mess in a spare room. Uh, that's Tim. <laughs> and that's, you know, that, that, you know, there's a lot of food all over the place, the, the packs there, everything else is in that room. Uh, and funnily enough, now the food's, the food in the image that uh, is in this uh, in the uh, the written article, and I've also reproduced this in the podcast uh, show notes, uh, is yeah, it, it's that's food for thirty odd days there. So I'm not, it's not all fitting in the pack, uh, but I know that everything is in one spot and everything gets packed and sorted out before I go. Yeah, and that hasn't been sorted at this minute, so it it does look a bit like a mess. But that's that's in a couple of weeks lead up to a hike. That's what Tim does. Now, as I'm putting my gear together, I do a couple of things. I think about each item I carry and whether I really need this. So do I need a third or a fourth pair of socks? Uh, I must admit, I used to run two pairs of socks. I typically these days will carry three. I've done enough hikes over the last few years where you end up with wet uh, wet feet for a fair part of the day, and having that extra pair of socks, particularly in rainy weather, is just a nice little luxury. It's also an opportunity to say, okay, well, do I need a pillow or do I need a particular a book or something like that? And if the answer is yes, that's fine. If you want to carry something, it's not a problem. But typically what I do find is when I first put my pack together, it's a tight fit. Uh, everything does fit. I know what fits into my pack and I know what I can get away with. But what it does do is it sets uh, myself up to know that, okay, um, I may have a bit too much. I know that I can actually, on my current pack that I'm using, I can actually fit up to 12 days of food. Now, I prefer not to do that if that's I have a, the option. That makes it pretty heavy. Yeah, it, it, well, it, does, it does push the weight up. But you know, sometimes there's no resupply option. Uh, And if it's a 12-day trip and there's no resupply option in the middle, that's what you end up carrying. But certainly uh, think about what you're actually going to be putting into your pack. As I said, leave enough time to purchase any last-minute items or replacements. Pack what you're going to use and don't pack things just in case. And we've done a podcast and written an article on packing your fears. Uh, And again, if you need something that's fine. If you want to carry something just because, that's also fine, but have a valid reason for why you are carrying it. Uh, The exception to this really is first aid gear and safety gears, things like a a personal locator beacon. I've never had to set off a personal locator beacon, uh, but I carry a beacon of some sort with me. I rarely use my first aid gear for an injury. It typically tends to be because I'm taking Nurofen or um, I'm taping my feet, not because I've had an accident. But you don't want to say, well... That's a good thing. It's a good thing. But you can't just say, well, it's because I haven't had an accident, I won't worry about carrying a first aid uh, kit. That's something that's, you know, it's not a luxury item and you may never use it, but you'll need it when you need it. 
Once I've done this initial pack, I don't leave, leave my fully packed pack sitting there for a week or two. I go through and pull it all apart uh, and make sure that you know, everything's there. I tend to put it into discrete groups. So my sleep gear goes in one area, my clothing goes in another. But it means that when I go through and pack for, uh, to travel, everything's there. I know that there's, there's nothing I've got to take out. And I think the, the key takeaway from this particular consideration is packing isn't a last-minute activity, but rather a process done over a period of days or weeks, and just don't leave it till the last minute. Because we are travelling by plane, we're going to move on to dangerous goods. Now, airlines have a list of what they call dangerous or hazardous goods, and there tends to be a list that's pretty consistent almost worldwide, but there are some variations. And these are things that are prohibited from being carrying on a plane altogether due to safety concerns. So stove fuel, certain chemicals as being an example here. Or if they are allowed, there is a limit to the quantity you can carry and the location it is carried. And I'll use as an example here, batteries and a knife. So you cannot carry a knife on a plane, uh, at least not in Australia, um, and many countries are the same. So that needs to be packed in your checked baggage. Batteries are similar. Um, all batteries should go in your cabin baggage. Typically, if they go into the baggage hold, they potentially, particularly things like lithium batteries, have the potentials to potential to explode or catch fire. Uh, and I must admit, I do not want to leave an iPad or a computer in the cargo hold of a plane. Um, it doesn't do the, do the electronics very good. So that always comes with me on the plane as well. But you need to check with your individual airline uh, and you also need to check in the destination countries you're heading to. So if you're flying, as an example, when we did Bhutan in 2012, we flew into Thailand and then from Thailand we flew to Bhutan. So we had different considerations, which were very similar, uh, that we had to make sure we were aware of as far as what was a dangerous good and what was a prohibitive good. So as mentioned, things like batteries, stove fuels, knives. And the thing I learned the hard way just recently was, du <laughs> was duct tape. And I'll explain the duct tape in a moment. Um, but you are not allowed to carry duct tape on a plane in Australia. And the explanation that was given to me was that I could randomly decide to attack someone on the plane and tie them up. Um, so uh, I thought, okay, yes, that's a valid point. I don't, I don't know if I've ever heard it happening. But that yeah, was, that was I the, don't know how, how easy it is to hold someone down while you've got your hands, you know, one end of the roll of tape and the other end on the sticky end and you're having to um, uh, cut the duct tape with your teeth. <laughs> Isn't that how you do it? Anyway, um, you got. I reckon you've got to be pretty good, but no doubt someone's done it at some point in time. And as I said, I will explain the duct tape story a bit later on in this episode. What you can do is if you go online, both Qantas and Virgin, which are the main airlines in Australia, as well as the other small, smaller regional carriers, they will have a, a, a page titled Dangerous Goods or uh, Hazardous Goods, and it will explain in detail what you can and can't carry on the plane, uh, and it is something to be aware of. Um, there's nothing more embarrassing than thinking, oh, look, I'll just pack my, my gas canister on the plane, uh, and then it gets taken away. Uh, and all of a sudden, you, you've, you've got to think quickly about what you do for replacing it at the next uh, your next destination. 
from here is resupply options. And we've talked about resupply uh, for hiking previously, but really um, this is one of these sort of things that when you get in the car and drive somewhere, so we live in Canberra, uh, which is surrounded by the state of New South Wales. I can get in the car, drive somewhere with all my food packed and ready to go. Uh, and Or in the case of the human hovel track, we went out about a week before and we cached food. We hid food in the bush. Uh, in another instance, we dropped food off at, a, at one of our accommodation spots along the way. And uh, in this case here, um, you've still got to think about what you're going to do for resupply. But the biggest consideration tends to be if you are flying in somewhere, quarantine restrictions between states or if you're traveling overseas may limit what you take. So in a lot of states in Australia, not all, um, you are unable to take fresh fruit, as an example. You'll get into the airport and there are bins to drop off fresh fruit if you've, if you've got it with you. Now, you can always decide, oh, I'll just ignore that and just carry it through. Now, there's two risks here. One is you could get caught and get fined. The other one is you could introduce a disease into the local agricultural area of that state. So doing it for the sake of doing it, you're better off just not thinking about it. Many states will allow, allow you to carry dried fruit, but they tend to limit you to commercially prepared products. Yeah, so, so sealed, I think, is probably also the um, key point there too. Yeah, so when, I must admit, when I buy, I do like making uh, dehydrated fruit on my hikes, but if I'm travelling interstate or overseas, I don't tend to use that. Uh, and what that means is that I, at the end of my trip, when I get there, I'm going to have to allow some time to stock up on particular food. Freeze-dried food, commercial freeze-dried food tends not to be an issue. But again, home-dried food um, or dehydrated food that you've done at home may, and I do say may, potentially be an issue. Uh, and it's, it's better to be safe than sorry and not worry about that and just stick with the freeze-dried food that is commercial uh, when you get through the airport, they can see that it's a commercial product, it's sealed, and you'll have less of an issue. But I would actually recommend you check, if you are travelling overseas, what the import uh, requirements are and what they will allow you to bring just to be on the safe side. So I think the key, key takeaway for me on this one is always check with your destination, state or country, on the requirements for the import of food. In that sort of instance as well, you also may decide to post ahead your food resupply, uh, and that might be a better option. And so you may find that you may not physically be able to carry food for a 30-day trip. You're going to have to post ahead uh, rather than doing caching, which means, dry, as I said, driving to a destination and dropping off food. From here, we start talking about luggage. In this case, we're talking about the check baggage. The this is the bulk of your gear that's going to be going inside the baggage cabin of the airplane underneath where everyone's sitting typically. And uh, you, you, you are not going to be able to fit a full-sized hiking backpack in a plane. They, most airlines won't allow you to do it, and it's just too heavy in most cases. Well, as carry-on. As carry-on, yeah. I think some, some people try, but... And I have been on airlines where you could quite comfortably get away with it, but again, it's a risk. So I've seen fully loaded backpacks go into the baggage hold of a plane, and there's a couple of risks with this. Typically with hiking backpacks, as opposed to travel-style backpacks, the uh, straps tend to be loose, and even if you tie them up, they're still not uh, fully sort of enclosed and tucked away. They can get caught on other things. They can get torn or damaged. 
You've got lots of little zip pockets and pockets around the place which may not be overly secure. So it, it's, it, it's a risk. I've been to some countries overseas where they've had a little machine that you go and pay a couple of dollars and they wrap your baggage to death in plastic. Uh, now, it helps to protect the, the, uh, the, the baggage. It helps to make sure that no one's tampering with it in any way. Uh, but particularly things like hiking backpacks, it means you can plastic this thing up and it's fully sealed and it's not likely to be damaged. Uh, but it's not something we commonly see in Australia, or at least that I've seen in Australian airports. So, and sometimes you know you might be able to get it, get that done at the departure point, but not necessarily um, when you're returning um, from that destination. So, you know, uh, sometimes it's a one-way option rather than a, a return option. So in this sort of instance here, what Jill and I do is we use duffel bags. Now, duffel bags uh, are basically these large bags that you tend to carry sporting equipment in uh, or carry big bulky uh, sets of clothing. You know, for most people, you can probably fit almost your entire clothing wardrobe in these sort of things. We typically will use duffel bags that are 100 to 120 litres in size. It sounds a lot, but when you're loading a pack, and it often tends to be the length of the pack tends to be the dictating feature yeah. here. I can get away with something that's slightly smaller. So in this instance here, I use the, the simpler duffel-style bags. I don't go for the really full-on option-up ones with wheels and everything else. Uh, it tends to be just these plastic material, uh, waterproof. Flexible. Uh, flexible, uh, with just a set of handles and a zip. And in this instance here, you put the pack on the bottom. Uh, you don't put a, a fully loaded pack in. The pack goes in empty on the bottom, and then everything else goes in on top. Uh, and I find that um, uh, I did that, so did that on my recent trip. I uh, used a pack going one direction and a pack going another, and I'll explain how that works in a moment. What I do in this instance is that I'll go through and pack my all my gear into my duffel bag, that will go into the baggage hold of the plane. When I get there, I'll get, I normally start, I'm staying somewhere at night time. I'll get to my hotel. I'll go through and pack my pack ready to start the hike the next day. I then go through and take my duffel bag. And this is where the duct tape comes in. I carry a roll of duct tape <laughs> with me and I will, I will duct tape this thing to death. Uh, so it's, it's scrunched down into a really small size. I'll typically be organized and I'll have a a prepaid uh, post bag uh, that'll take sort of five to 10 kilos, costs about 15 to $20, uh, and I'll put this bag in there. Uh, it ends up being an odd-shaped bag, but the, the the rules are if it fits in there, they'll post it, and I'll, I'll just return it. I'll stuff it into the uh, uh, a, a post box nearby either that <laughs> night or the next morning. So you do need to find a post box that's got one of the uh, ones for parcels where you can actually get that little... Uh, uh, the little uh, fold-out door that you put parcels into. And then push really hard. Yeah, push really hard, <laughs> yeah. We've done this for a number of years, and I've done this on a number of trips, and it works really well. Now, where the bag goes to can vary. So in the case of Larapinta Trail, we didn't actually send it back again. We put everything in a duffel bag. We went to our hotel. Uh, we left the bag there uh, in store because we were coming back to the same hotel at the end of the trip. So it meant that we could leave travel clothes, anything we didn't particularly need with us while we're on the hike. For a, a number of hikes where you're starting off in one destination 
uh, one location and finishing in a totally different location, you can either send the duffel bag ahead to where that destination is. Uh, so in the case of, say, the Bibbleman track, I knew where I was staying at the end of the hike, uh, and I ended up sending the bag on to that destination, uh, and they, it was ready for me when I got there. Uh, alternatively, I could actually send it back to Jill uh, and either buy another bag at the end of it. Now, it's an additional expense by doing that, but it means that your expensive hiking backpack is going to stay in good condition. Uh, but if you can get yourself organized and the just logistics allowed uh, and you know where you're staying, it's just as easy to send it to your final destination before you get back on the plane again. I've been using this sort of method for about 15 years and it tends to work very well. The thing I'd say here is avoid really heavy uh, duffel bags. Typically a 100-120 litre plastic style duffel bag will weigh around about two, two and a half kilos. So it's not a huge weight. It'll go through the post fairly easily and you're not carrying at the end of it. From here we move inside the plane into a carry-on baggage. Now there are always things that you are going to need to carry with you on a plane. This includes things like your wallet. Uh, if you're carrying battery packs, they cannot go in the cabin hold of the plane. They need to go in the plane itself. Uh, cameras, again, you don't want to stick your camera uh, in, the, in the baggage hold of the plane is going with you. In my case, I typically carry a small iPad. Uh, that goes with me on the plane. So you need something to put it into. And I've used two different methods over the years to, to deal with this. One I tried just recently, and I won't do it again, was this carrying a plastic bag. And the idea with this was, <laughs> I can I can throw this thing out. I can throw this thing out uh, if need be. And I, the problem with that was I didn't have any way, way to secure the top. I felt paranoid about losing stuff out of this because my wallet and uh, everything else was in there as well. You look like a homeless man yeah, with your plastic bag on a plane. <laughs> Sorry. So. Yeah, it's, uh, I tried it once. I'll never do that again. What I do tend to use is there is a number of companies like Osprey and Cedar Summit that produce these really, really lightweight uh, stuff packs, they're called. Uh, and the one I, I've used, uh, I was showing the, the uh, written article, is the Osprey stuff pack. It weighs about 90 grams. I actually take it with me on a hike, although if, if need be, I could always send that back home as well. But I find that particularly when I'm doing a long hike and I've got to go into a town and pick up food resupply, having that little backpack is quite handy and it weighs almost nothing. So it's become part of my fixed gear for hiking uh, and it works quite well. And looks better than the plastic bag. It does, yeah. Now, travel clothing. Uh, again, there's a couple of options and alternatives here and really how you manage your travel clothing is going to depend on the type of trip you're doing. So I'll start with Larapinta Trail, which I mentioned just previously. Because we were going to a hotel, staying there a night, um, and in fact we ended up staying there uh, two nights beforehand, we uh, used one day to resupply, uh, we ended up uh, travelling in fairly decent, comfortable leisure clothes because we, were, we knew we were having a couple of days at the end of the trip just to relax and we didn't want to be hiking in dirty clothes. Uh, that we've been using on the hike. Yeah, it's a bit uh, it's a bit antisocial going to dinner, isn't it, in your grubby hiking gear that you've been wearing for two weeks? 
You can do it, I guess, but... Yeah, so in that instance, you know, we, we actually took a pair of decent travel clothes. That's what we travelled home in, uh, and they were relatively clean and fresh and didn't stink like our hiking clothes did. For many of my hikes, if I'm just getting from point A to point B and I'm staying in a, a hotel for just the night and travelling off the next day and doing the same at the other end, I'll wear my hiking clothes to my destination and, you know, really all you're doing is adding an additional day, maybe two days worth of travel time. When you're doing six or seven days, the smell is going to be no worse by adding a couple of extra days to it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but then you have to ask the person who's sitting next to you on the return trip on the plane. <laughs> yes, I would, I would actually recommend that you allow yourself time to, if you are going to be wearing your hiking clothes home again, to wash. Uh, now, we typically will stay in hotels or accommodation that either have coin-operated uh, uh, washers and dryers or they have a laundry service. It is worth it. Uh, and again, as I said, if you're coming off the trail after a number of days, you stink and no one really wants to share that with you. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that I've done when we haven't been able to organise uh, uh, storing gear for after the trip is just have uh, a couple of items that are clean that sit at the bottom of my pack that I get out. It doesn't weigh very much and I get them out and put them on at the end of the trip to return home in. That works well too. Okay, and the last one I'll go through and think of is pre-hike resupply. Now, what I mean by this is if you are travelling on a plane, we previously talked about uh, dangerous and hazardous goods. I do use a stove when I hike, I, and, and some people would consider that a luxury item. I like having a hot meal at the end of the day. I like having a cup of tea in the morning, uh, and I'm not. And I'm willing to carry the additional weight uh, for carrying a, a stove of some type. Uh, I just find using gas canister stoves tends to be the easiest way to go. And in all honesty, from an Australian perspective, it is not unusual to have, if you're going into national parks or state reserves and there's a total fire ban, liquid fuel stoves are banned. So you know, a, a lot of the, the American tra- school of thought is you know, travel with a liquid fuel stove. Um, and you know, yes, it does save on weight and, you, and it's pretty easy to pick up uh, liquid fuel pretty much anywhere in the world. But if you can't use it, it's pretty much a waste. So from an Australian perspective, a gas canister so stove of some type, whether it tends to be an integrated stove or a, a, free, a standalone screw-on stove and you, that you've put together, really doesn't matter. But the canister stoves make it quite easy. And on my recent Tasmanian trip, I went through and arrived in Hobart, uh, arrived around about lunchtime. I had my lunch. My bus to my next destination wasn't for a few hours later. And it allowed me after time, after lunch, I had time to walk up to the nearest outdoor store, pick up gas and a roll of duct tape. Because uh, <laughs> yours was confiscated. Yeah, and I needed to be able to send my bag <laughs> off. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I also had the option of doing that the next day. By doing it on that day, it means I didn't have to wait till the outdoor stores opened the next day and gave me some additional travel time. So think about things like that pre-hike resupply. So do you need uh, fuel stoves? Do you have to buy that last-minute bit of food that you couldn't 
located home or you want some fresh fruit for the first couple of days of the hike, really you know, allow that time and work out where it is you're going to go. Um, it may be that you, know, you do that part way to your final destination. It may be that you get to where you're going and you've got a little local store just down the road. Whatever works out easiest for you is going to make things, uh, uh, if you pre-plan it and think about that before you travel, makes things much easier. Okay, so just to finish off, for seasoned travellers, plane travel tends not to be something that people tend to think about too much. Due to my father's jobs, I spent a lot of time travelling overseas and um, I must admit, when I first met Jill, Jill always wanted to do lots of traveling. I'd pretty much had it with travel. I'd, uh, I'd spent enough time on planes that it wasn't something I particularly wanted to do. Well, I ended up with a career where I traveled all around Australia and overseas for work. I used to say I'd go to Paris for work. Um, but, you know, once you get that sort of um, experience, you work out a system that works for you and that translates easily to uh, hiking. So some of this is a bit of a practice as much as anything else. So really when you think about it, um, travelling by plane to get to a hiking destination, it does provide you with freedom. Whether you don't leave the state or don't leave the country, you don't have to go overseas, but it provides you with freedom to do hikes you may not necessarily be able to do without a a 20-hour drive to get there. And it also forces you to think about what it is you really need to pack. Um, you know, after the first trip uh, you ever do on a plane, you realise typically people will tend to overpack. And by doing one or two trips, it really does allow you and focus you on what you need to carry. And that's something you can carry into your hiking packing system as well. So as I said, it's not a bad thing and it does make you think. Okay, that's all for this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed Um You can also read this podcast episode uh, as a written version, and we'll put a link to the show notes in there as well. We hope you've enjoyed. That's all for me. Bye for now. And bye from me. And these are things that are prohibited on. This is the bulk of your gear that is going to be going inside the cabbage hot. <laughs> they cannot go in the cabbage hot.